Welcome to Try Not to Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, ins and outs, news, tips, and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. Makers of stellar gas permeable lenses and the oh-so-incredible custom-stable scleral lens. In case you're wondering, I'm on the East Coast. I'm Dr. James Diem. I'm joined by my talented co-host who's repping the West Coast, Dr. Roya Habibi. Roya, what is up? Just getting off a nice leisurely weekend, celebrating Wife Appreciation Day. Did you do that? Appreciation Day is every day. Sunday, Uh, September, (laughs) September... 15th. Wow. It's a national holiday, the third Sunday in September. Apparently, that's the only day worth celebrating. (laughs) Yeah. Wives. That's right. Did you do anything (laughs) good this weekend? I don't even know what to say about that. Folks, just so you know, so you don't feel left out. Husband Appreciation Days in April. Okay, good. I was worried. When am I going to get my appreciation? I feel like women should just deserve a whole month of appreciation, wives. Yes. But that's just just saying. Other thing worth noting for this week, at the end of this week, is actually Vision Expo West. That's right. Are you going to be there? I have to miss it this time. No Vegas for me. Great time to be there, but not for me. Lots of fun stuff going on. In fact, our guest, which I'm not going to... Not gonna tease him yet, but he is uh, gonna be there. So uh, there's, I know there's gonna be lots of good lectures uh, from many people. They're going to be having all sorts of good stuff before, during, after. I think there's big parties, all sorts of good stuff. Of course, absolutely. I've never been to Vision Expo actually. Ashamed to say, it's good. Well, let's hop onto our topic. Sounds good. All right, so our motivation for tonight's topic, and kind of a heavy one, but I think it's really necessary for all of us to have a little refresher, is we've decided we're going to start having some monthly polls on our different social media accounts asking our listeners what they want to hear about. Content creation is basically the hardest part about running this podcast, and we want to know what you actually care to spend a little time listening to. So one of our best listeners, obviously, Amber Gaddy Dunn, gave us a solid idea about essentially all things glaucoma. Diagnostic, standard of care, what is the new follow-up protocols? Basically, what should you, let's have a refresher, a little uh, second-year refresher on what you should do to treat glaucoma, I say. And so, obviously, I asked Jimmy who he thought the best person essentially in the world would be, and he's been trying to figure this out for like, Basically two years. That's how long we've been waiting. <laughs> Just kidding. And here we are today. So, Jimmy, I'm going to give you the honors for our intro. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked uh, that person and they didn't want to come on. <laughs> so I asked another person and they also said they were too busy. The third person, no go. They they don't do podcasts. So fourth on the list um, was Justin Schweitzer. I'm just kidding. He is <laughs> yeah. number one on the list, of course. Uh Really making a huge splash on the lecture circuit. He's everywhere and uh, doing everything, winning all the awards. And uh, if you don't know him, uh, hopefully you get to know him a little bit better tonight and take an opportunity to, at the next big meeting, go to one of his live lectures because he's extremely dynamic, interesting to listen to, and uh, almost always talking about uh, glaucoma. He is a practicing optometrist at Vance Thompson Vision Center in South Dakota, which we were joking just a little bit ago. There are people that live in South Dakota. Apparently they have eyes. And uh, (laughs) so they uh, do need someone to help take care of them. It's a pretty amazing place. So we'll get to know a little bit more about that from him. He is the founding president of the Intrepid Eye Society. That's how I got to know him. Uh, And and, uh, just real quick, I'm going to take two seconds to tell you a little bit about him. He is a Jamestown, North Dakota native. Is that right, Dr. Schweitzer? That is correct. Go Jimmy's. Jamestown, North Dakota. I'm going to I'm going to teach you something about Jamestown, Justin. 15,000 people live there, which I was actually very surprised about. Did you know that? I would have said 16,000. 
maybe well there's not much to do there other than make babies so maybe maybe by now that's true um it is the ninth largest city in north dakota so it's actually a pretty populous place but the thing that jamestown is known for secondary to producing dr schweitzer is that it is the home of the world's largest buffalo did you know that 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 is mean, so like, correct, but... and um, it's just a huge statue. It's massive. It is a massive statue buffalo that you will see on interstate as you go by, and you got to stop there. There's a museum there. There's live buffalo <laughs> there. Um, you know, the Frontier Village is what it's called, and uh, for a long time, they had a famous buffalo called White Cloud who unfortunately passed away, uh, but uh, you still can see White Cloud. White Cloud happens to be in the museum. Museum, oh, wow, really? Museum Stuffed? slash ghost. <laughs> exactly. Yes, correct. <laughs> I feel like the Dakotas are so popular for their like roadside attractions. Slash fracking. No? Yes? Oh, yeah. That's big there, too, now. Oh, yeah. That's big. That's Western North Dakota. There you go. Nice. So I thought that was a fun little little thing. And, and you went to school in Jamestown. Is that correct? There's a college there, too. Yes, correct. Uh, go Jimmy's. I said it earlier. I'll say it again. Uh, so they, uh, yeah, Jamestown College is where I went. I'm impressed you did all this research, though. Um, yeah, especially well, with your you busy know, it's, schedule. It's out there on the interwebs. All the you want to find <laughs> out about somebody, you just Google them. And then you went to Pacific, huh? You went to the Pacific University of College. Yes, of optometry. Yeah, correct. Yep, Pacific University College wonderful, of Optometry. Then, did you go right to Vance Thompson then, or did you practice anywhere in between? So I actually did. Uh, I was in private practice for a few years uh, before I ended up transitioning over to, to Vance Thompson Vision in uh, around 2012. Okay. Nice. And then you did a residency there. Yeah. So I did their, uh, you know, first really um, unaccredited residency there. And then now we've established a residency there. So we have an accredited cool. residency there. Uh, we accept externs uh, from uh, a couple different schools and um, are now on our uh, fourth resident currently. Um, and so it's been, it's been a lot of fun, not only uh, obviously being bo- involved in clinical care, but having the opportunity to now teach and, and work with residents and students on a daily basis. Very cool. That's fun. For those of you that don't know, Vance Thompson, well, Vance Thompson, he's a mover and shaker, right? In ophthalmology. Yeah, I mean, Vance is not only brilliant and an amazing surgeon, uh, but, you know, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And um, the amount, the advice that he gives you, not only professionally, but personally, uh, you're just not going to find it, in my opinion, anywhere else. I'm a little biased, probably. But, uh, you know, the multitude of FDA clinical trials he's done uh, to move the profession forward uh, in the ophthalmology world is is really unheard of. Okay, well, let's get to know you the way we like to do on the podcast, Justin, okay? So we have a fun little game that we do that has nothing to do with eyes, but our listeners need to know. So the real you. And we'll start easy, okay? I'm going to give you a multiple choice. It's kind of like a one or the other question. Would you rather drink Pepsi or Coke? Oh, wow. I don't drink pop. Pop. What is pop anyway? Soda. I'm from South Dakota. Uh, soda. Or if pop. You, so neither one? I don't drink pop. I don't drink soda or pop. So I, I, I mean. What do you drink? Well, you're a triathlete. You know we don't drink uh, a lot is, of that stuff. This guy's stuff. a triathlete. He, so is, he is ripped. Gallon you know, of water a day. <laughs> water, some Gatorade. Um, you know, all I right, like coffee, right. but I'm not, just not a, I'm not a soda guy. But if I had to pick, I would pick Coke. I'd pick all Coke right, if I had to Chicken pick. Chicken or steak? Steak for sure. What is your, I mean, if we're going to go back, sorry to like beat a dead horse here, but what's your favorite adult beverage if you're not going to have Coke or Pepsi? Yeah. Favorite adult beverage if I'm not going to have Coke or Pepsi? Uh, you know, <laughs> South Dakota guy, Bush Light. That's what we do up here now is they Bush call it Bush, Bush Latte is the correct terminology <laughs> now. So that and a steak, I mean, I'm... My father-in-law would be disappointed in with with me if I didn't say steak and bush latte. Bush latte. 
Love it. <laughs> I do like that. What's your favorite sunglass brand? You're a you're you're an outdoorsman, so. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm Oakley. I wear a lot of Oakley because of cycling. Uh, and then Ray-Ban. Yeah. I kind of go those two. That's kind of my main two. I'm a little out of the loop on that too, by the way, because I don't have an optical. So, I mean, you guys would have to educate me a bit on that as well. But those are the two right now I'm going to stick with. We won't hold that answer against you. It's I think those are tried and true <laughs> answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. Those it's are, okay. I think they're relatively tried and true. I'd say that's not yeah, a wrong answer. Totally. Okay, last question. <laughs> What is your spirit animal? The animal Very that important. defines your personality. What would you say? Oh, wow. That is a that is an interesting question. Right? <laughs> Holy cow, that is I've like never been asked this before. And we can Boy. tell you've never listened to our podcast before either because we Yeah, so I just it. got caught on that too, so that's great. Um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pay for that for a while, I'm sure. Boy, you know, (laughs) I like to go fast. I like to go fast. So I don't know. Is a cheetah even a, is that even a spirit animal? I think that's a fair one. Yeah. You could pick anything. Fast. I like fast. I mean, you do race. Yeah. I think that's a I like fast. I'm sticking with that. Bro is fast. He's done a sub 10 hour. Am I correct? Sub 10 hour Ironman. 9.59, 9.59, about as close as you can get to 10 oh hours. Oh, my gosh. That that's, seems really fast. That's sub 10. That's sub 10, baby. <laughs> that is very impressive, Roy. Just so you know, that is very, very impressive. That is a very small percentage of human beings that could do that. That is very impressive. I don't even think I could do it, period. So I think that's pretty impressive regardless. It is. It's awesome. So this guy is... Uh, you know, obviously somebody that pushes himself in every aspect and uh, just kicks butt all around. And so my question to you is why glaucoma? You're, you're, this is one of the things that you specialize in. Would you say it's fair enough something that if you could choose one thing to do all day, would you choose glaucoma Am I, or would it be something else? You know, I think you're accurate with that. Um, you know, there's days that glaucoma drains the heck out of you and you wonder if it's something you want to do all day. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a passion of mine. And, um, you know, I kind of started to fall in love with it when I started with Vance Thompson Vision because we're an anterior segment practice as well. So we do cataract, obviously, surgeries. We do refractive surgery there. We do a lot of corneal pathology there. And then um, the surgeon that I work with, uh, John Birdall, also is glaucoma trained as well as anterior seg mm. trained. And so I, I dealt with a lot of glaucoma with him and quickly found out the first year that I was with him that, you know, this is something that I, I want to get better at, number one, but continue to try to move the profession forward with. And, and really, when I think of all those things that I just talked about, it's still probably my passion, something I, I would love to do, uh, continue to do, but also could do all day long. So when you say push the profession forward, and we're going to get into a little bit more nuts and bolts and try and help do that in this talk, but what did you see as a difference between the way that starting to work with a glaucoma-trained surgeon versus your optometric background? What were some of the differences in the way that you approached glaucoma versus the way that he approached glaucoma? Yeah, so it's a nice mix actually, because obviously being you know trained surgically to manage glaucoma, uh, he was also trained to to manage patients uh, medically with topical therapy too. But you know, as you know, like I do, that as as optometrists, uh, first line therapy a lot of times we're reaching for you know glaucoma medications. Uh, we're maybe not as apt to say, hey, let's go right to surgery. Surgeons are more comfortable with it, so they move towards surgery maybe a, a little quicker. That's not wrong. It's just that's what they're trained to do. And I think the beauty of my relationship with him is that at times he could tell me that, hey, we need to be a little bit more aggressive in this case. And we probably need to move to surgery a little quicker. And it's a healthy debate. And at times I could say to him, maybe we should back off and consider some other options that are maybe a little bit more conservative. And so to me, that's the beauty of the relationship. It, it's it's such a nice way working with him because he respects my opinion, I respect his, and it uh, just provides better patient care. Absolutely. Nice. So glaucoma, it's it's 
it's common, right? I mean, it's a relatively common condition. It's a second, second to cataract is a leading cause of global blindness and leading cause of irreversible vision loss globally. The United States doesn't suffer quite as much as the global population from the United States. What, what is your glaucoma prevalence uh, like in, in uh, South Dakota? And where do your glaucoma patients come from? Yeah, so we, you know, we don't, we're very, uh, we have a very Caucasian population where I'm at, obviously. So I don't see a lot of the really bad African American glaucoma in, in our practice. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. see a ton of pseudo exfoliative uh, glaucoma. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pseudo exfoliation because of the population there. So that's kind of the bad glaucoma that we deal with. And then, of course, we still have primary opening gla- glaucoma, normal tension glaucoma. We still run into the bad stuff. Um, but traditionally when we're running into stuff, it's a lot of the secondary glaucomas. It's a lot of the pseudo exfoliative type. Interesting. I, I, I feel like that's very similar to my patient population, even though we're, we're transitioning into more, uh, Spanish, uh, speaking populations, which we're getting into some of those more aggressive forms of glaucoma. Is that something that you're seeing at all? Any influx into your community with various, uh, patient types, any changes in the demographics or, what, why are people in South Dakota? <laughs> what's the, what's the economy? What are people doing there? Are they farmers? Are they ranchers? What are they doing? Yeah, that's a big part of our, our economy is farming and ranching. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's, that, that's the majority of it, you know, and then, you know, Sioux Falls is a, a city of 200,000, so we're not tiny. Right. And so there's some, there's, there's young entrepreneurs that, that come into our city with, um, the banking industry and things like that. Um, but yeah, I've seen a small influx of that, of, of the Hispanic population, uh, but but probably not as, as much as, as what you're seeing from, from what you just said. So again, it's yeah. more along that, that Caucasian um, you know, population that, that traditionally I see in our practice. I think it's a big it's a big thing to think about and discuss with glaucoma because we are seeing a demographic shift in in the United States uh, from uh, Spanish speaking countries, and uh, it's definitely something that is more prevalent in in those populations. So, glaucoma is a condition. It it varies widely in the way that people diagnose and treat it. Right? I I often tell patients this, and you know, I can hear myself saying it 10 times in a day, you know, if I line up 10 different doctors and I have you go see 10 of them and, and, you know, five might say you have glaucoma, the other five might not. So how do you assess a glaucoma patient? Let's try and just take us through that, you know, for our listeners who are thinking about, you know, this is something I want to hear how the expert does it. So what do you do? And actually on top of that question, you, what would you consider to be must-haves to be able to truly diagnose as opposed yeah. to what are some luxuries you may have at your office that you are also doing as well? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the first uh, the first part of the question uh, first, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I sure. like to think of glaucoma like a big puzzle. Um, I think where sometimes we make mistakes, and, and I made this mistake, I'm sure, early on and and still may sometimes, is... We can't get caught up just looking at intraocular pressure. We need to look at all the pieces to the puzzle. So you have IOP, you have retinal nerve fiber layer thickness, you have you know ganglion cell analysis, you have uh, family history, age, the 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 visual field. Um, you know I'm leaving a few out. I mean the central corneal thickness. Um, all these things you have to take, and you got to build a risk profile. You know, corneal hysteresis, and we can talk about that a little bit if you want to. But I take all those pieces of the puzzle, uh, put them together, and that gets you to the final piece, which is which is the glaucoma piece. And to me, if enough of those pieces fit where there's enough risk there, then you have that discussion with the patient on should we treat or shouldn't we treat. Um, and so for is me, is that just a, a feeling though? Is that a feeling? Is there a calculator? Is there a, like a literal balance where they're all e- weighted equally? How do you, you know, that's because it's tough, right? It's it's not very cut and dry. Yeah. So I think the oat study, which we probably should touch on a little bit, uh, let's you know, do it. Established a lot it. of that. Yeah, yeah. Established a lot of that for us. There is a risk calculator out there. If, if people want to use that, you know, there, there is, you can, you can access that. Just type it in online. I don't typically use it. it. It's in my head. And I think a lot of us, it's in our head, but if it's not in your head, it's a simple thing to do. And you can plug those things in. 
And a lot of that comes from what we learned from the ocular hypertension treatment study, um, which told us that there's, you know, five huge risks in glaucoma. Age, the older you are, the more likely you're, you're at risk for glaucoma. Uh, IOP, the higher the IOP, the more risk you're at. Uh, central corneal thickness. And so with that, if you had a central corneal thickness of less than 555 microns and an IOP above 25.75 uh, is what it was, I believe, you were at a 36% risk at five years of developing glaucoma, an independent risk factor in that particular study. This guy's good. Pattern standard deviation matters. And that was the other thing. And then vertical cup to disc ratio. Uh, so greater than, than a half is that risk factor. And those all came from the OAT study. And so, um, again, it's, it's piecing those things together, knowing those risk factors and determining should we treat or, or shouldn't we treat. Um, I always talk about IOP because I think IOP, um, we, sometimes, we sometimes overuse that as a treatment parameter or a treatment piece. I've had plenty of patients that'll have a pressure of 26 and and never progress, and I've followed them for, you know, seven years now. Um, and I'll have patients that have a pressure of 21 or 18, and I can't get it slowed down. You know, they're going, they're progressing quick. The OCT is thinning, and there's a variety of things that could be causing that, and and you know, we could get into that. It'd probably take all night if we got into that, but. I think you have to think about glaucoma as a puzzle and don't get caught up in just using, you know, IOP. Well, real quick, not to beat the IOP thing, but when you say, what do you feel like is the standard way to measure IOP? There's so many ways. Everyone's going to debate all the different ways to measure it. But in your practice, what do you think is the best way to do it? Yeah, that's our best few. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, obviously, Goldman applination thermometry is the standard, but there's issues with it. There's a lot of things that influence it. Uh, a lot of post-refractive patients come in that have glaucoma and don't get diagnosed because we're not getting accurate IOP reading because the cornea has been altered. You have data now on patients that will come in and have exercised you know, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise can lower interocular pressure by two to six millimeters of mercury. And even if we're getting an accurate measurement, you know, we may be missing out if we're just looking at IOP. So we definitely use Goldman. Um, we actually, um, for a while and, and still do at times, and most of the time, take it three different ways. Uh, we applinate. Oh, cool. We use eye care. So we use a rebound thermometer. And then we now use the ocular response analyzer and we're getting um, IOPG from that, which is a Goldman uh, equivalent. You also get corneal hysteresis from that. And then you also get a corneal compensated intraocular pressure from that as well. So that's taking into account the bio biomechanical properties of the cornea. And, you know, there's some evidence and in, in a study, I guess I would encourage uh, the listeners and, and everyone to look up um, was published in 2018 uh, in ophthalmology, and it was by Susanna uh, and, and her group. And they looked at corneal hysteresis in a bunch of glaucoma suspects. All these patients did not have visual field defects. They were not diagnosed with glaucoma. Uh, so they're all ocular hypertensive or glaucoma suspects. There were 287 eyes in the study and followed them for four years. And at about four years, 54 of the eyes out of 287, developed a visual field defect. And those 54 eyes that developed that visual field defect had a corneal hysteresis of lower, or in that study, it was 9.5 or lower. The ones that didn't were about 2.0 or 10.2 or above. And so okay. for reference- Not to interrupt you really quickly, just asking for a friend, what does corneal hysteresis mean? <laughs> yeah, asking no, I'm perfect. Friend. I was just going to get to that. Somebody so, on no, ODs on Facebook asked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Idiots. So for reference, to give you this first, uh, 10.5 is on average in the United States corneal hysteresis. That's the, the average hysteresis in the United States is 10.5. Okay. Okay. So that's something that, that's a number to know based off of what we just talked about. What corneal hysteresis is, yep. So what corneal hysteresis is, is the ability of the cornea to absorb a force. 
And the thought with it is, is that our eye is one continuous structure. And so what's occurring with the biomechanical properties of the cornea could tell us something about what's happening with maybe the sclera. But more importantly, when we're talking about glaucoma, what's happening with the optic nerve head. And so Mm. what is the force inside the eye that's applied to the optic nerve head? It's IOP. And so I think of it like a shock absorber. So the measurement's like a shock absorber. If you're driving down the road, you got a good shock absorbing system. You hit that bump and you don't feel it. You kind of glide right over it. That's a high corneal hysteresis. That's somewhere above 10.5. You hit that bump and you really feel it. And it's not comfortable. That's not a good shock absorbing system. That'd be a low corneal hysteresis. And there's still some debate on what low is, but probably nine or below is is that low corneal hysteresis. So it's a range. And I don't I don't use corneal hysteresis to diagnose glaucoma. I use it as one of my risk profiles. If they have a low corneal hysteresis, then that's a check mark on, hey, this patient's at risk for glaucoma. Absolutely. Jimmy, are you measuring hysteresis in your clinic? We are not. No, we are not. But we've we've looked at it and you know, he definitely makes a compelling case. It's billable, right? Uh, it, it is billable. There's different, uh, it, it's billable, some but is it payable in pay, certain different parts don't. of the country? It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys make anything on it? Is it a break even? Yes. Is it just... Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, it is not, we don't get reimbursed for it. So it is something we have to, you know, bill to the patient. And so we have to have that discussion mm-hmm. with them. Uh, but it kind of varies from, you know, state to state, region to region. Yeah. So um, that does an NCT as well, right? It gives you NCT eye pressure also, the hysteresis machine? Yeah, it's, it's you know, the it's different than NCT. It's doing that, but the measurement is not, um, you know, it is a puff of air, but the mechanics yeah. of it are a bit different than what a standard non-contact tonometer is. Got it. Now, Roya, do you do that? We do not have a NCT or a it's hysteresis. It's a corneal hysteresis machine. We, yeah. I do not, we do not have any sort of tool for that. Um, I, br- are, I believe the correct word is histopathological tonometry manometer. <laughs> <laughs> right? Isn't that what it is? Uh, you nailed it. I'm going to say yes. Kind of. Who makes the machine? It's only one company, right? Uh, it's Reichert. Yeah, it's Reichert. Yeah, yeah. So okay. Yeah, no, I think it's a. What, and I so should probably disclose. Con? I should probably disclose that I do do some work with them too. I think that's uh, fair yeah, to that's say. Fine. What do you think? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's valuable? Do you, would you like to practice without it, or you now that you've had it, would you not want to live without it? Yeah, I think it's one hundred percent valuable. Again, it's not going to diagnose glaucoma, but to generate risk profiles and determine how aggressive we need to be with our treatment, whether that's doing meds, whether that's watching them, whether that's they need to go to surgery. Um, you know, I couldn't practice without it. I would say if you ask my partners that, um, they would completely agree with that as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. And again, I want to stress that it's a small piece of the puzzle along with everything else that we use. Would you choose that or a pachymeter if you had to give one thing up? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, that's that's not a fair question. So thanks for that, Roya. Uh, <laughs> you know, because we know how important corneal thickness is, and and um, so, you know, if I had to hang my hat on one, boy, I st- I probably would choose hysteresis for my for myself. Ooh, um, wow, I, I like probably would. All right, just cool. because I get um, so much information out of it. You know, I, again, it's not going to diagnose it, but I get a lot more information than thick or thin. You know, we know with CCT, all we care about is thick or thin with that. Right. Do you check it repetitively or is it just that you found it and that's it? Or can it can change? Yeah, it, it can change. And so you have to be um, aware of that, obviously. Uh, ideally, if you check it before you, before you start treatment, that's ideal. Um, you know, because treatment can, and there's been some studies published that treatment can affect how it, how it reacts, how the measurement is, Hmm. how accurate the measurement is. Um, Okay. What about this? So let's go back to some basics here because of course you're in a specialty center seeing a lot of patients that have any level of glaucoma, but for, for our 
docs that are doing more comprehensive care, the the age old question of when do you start? Like, what are the most sensitive measures to check for glaucoma? When does someone step out of the suspect category and go into a glaucoma suspect? And I know that's kind of a hard question to answer, and everyone wants to know the answer. But like, when do you if, start treatment? You're saying. When do you start treatment? Slash, better yeah. question. If there was one tool that you did have to kind of hang your hat on, what is one of the more sensitive ways to check for change? Would you hang it on OCT, your visual field? What do you look at the most? ERG. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I hang my hat still on OCT uh, because if they got a visual field defect, they're already advanced and, and, and we want to avoid that if at all possible. And preparametric glaucoma is a real thing. And you guys have heard the term green disease where you'll have a patient that is slowly declining on their retinal nerve fiber layer, but their OCT is still showing green and it's saying, well, they're normal. So can you just explain that real quick? Just you bet. So you'll have a patient come in. Let's just say, for example, they have normal corneal thickness. Their pressure is 21. It's the first time you've seen them. You run the visual field on them. It's clean. Um, You run an OCT on them. Let's just say their average retinal nerve fiber layer thickness is 98. Okay. Yeah. And this is a patient that's 65 years old. And ultimately you decide, you know what, I'm just going to watch this patient, which, which makes sense. Um, you know, the pressure's kind of borderline there, but you're not going to treat because everything looks normal. You bring them back a year later. Now everything's still the same. Pressure's 21. You don't have a visual field defect. And now their OCT, that average retinal nerve fiber layer OCT went from 98 down to 90. And you got to make sure it's an accurate reading, of course, but that still measures green, possibly, right? I'm, I'm just saying, right. uh, yeah. We probably a better example would be they measured uh, 110 and they went to 98, but that's true progression, possibly. And if you get it again a year later and you see it decline again, that's true progression. That's something called green disease, where they're truly progression progressing right in front of your face. But their OCT continues to say everything's within normal limits and green. And those are patients so, that we probably need to treat. Yeah. Is that a good – because we know and I think we expect the average numbers to go down slightly. But is there a number that we all kind of agree upon? 10 microns difference? 15? Like what is the number that we kind of say, oh, that's acceptable age-related or that's – glaucoma? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, You know, when we think of OCT, a couple studies to reference, um, and I I need to apologize to this author if I butcher his last name, but uh, Mwanza. They don't listen to the podcast. You don't listen to the podcast. (laughs) 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 Mwanza published something in ophthalmology in 2011, and then another study by Kim in investigative ophthalmology visual science in 2015 um, and average retinal nerve fiber layer thickness of a change of about four microns, you know, on a, on a short-term basis, uh, is, is something that we need to be aware of, you know? And, and so if I see, if you get an OCT in six months and there's four mu- four microns of change, um, you know, you should be concerned if there's seven microns of change looking at the superior and inferior retinal nerve fiber layer, uh, you should be concerned. And if there's, macular uh, or ganglion complex change of around four microns, just like what we mentioned with average retinal nerve fiber, then we need to be concerned. And so those are the two, two of the studies to reference. Um, there's obviously plenty more out there, but that's kind of a, a rough estimate of change. But you're exactly right, Roy. As we age, our retinal nerve fiber layer um, declines a bit. Right. How about this? Another question kind of related to that. And most people in private practice, they're, they're, you know, doing your comprehensive exam. You check out the nerve and you're like, whoa, that looks like a large, that looks like some big cupping there. This maybe is glaucoma. If you had to not run your whole panel, right? You're doing a screening. Everything's healthy. Patient's got 15 IOP in each eye. They have no family history. They're 45. If you had just to pick one test, let's say come in for a vision exam. So they're trying to use their vision insurance and you're like, no, we got to do this. What would be your one test that you're like, let's get this. And you're talking about a screening. 
Yeah, like they haven't ever been told they have glaucoma. No one's ever mentioned this before. But big you're like, nerve um, sas- slash big suspicious nerve. Suspicious nerve. Don't want to yeah, pay so, anything though. <laughs> yeah, so I think we still have to hang our hat on the visual field. Uh, it's still the standard of care. It's still the test that you know if there's a defect there, we need to pick that up. Um, that's a, that's a key point. But I think it's really hard in this day and age with what we know about with glaucoma that we can't pair an OCT with vis- with a visual field. Um, but I still would have to say if you if you put me on a desert island with you know one thing I could use, it would still be it would still be the visual field. Um, thankfully, we don't live really? in that age, uh, wow. which is nice. Um, I think there's still debate. I mean, I, I told you earlier that the OCT is probably the thing that would drive me to treat someone over you know anything else because if we have a visual field defect, we've already missed a lot. That patient already has right. a significant amount of damage that's already occurred. Um, tell me, um, tell me a little bit about visual fields because I think, you know, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's abstract for a lot of doctors, but you can get a lot. You mentioned pattern standard deviation before. Um, what, what visual field are you using? Are there, uh, certain types of tests you're running with the visual field that are better? So if you can answer that. Yeah, so I think um, right now, have you guys heard of, so CETA Faster has come out? Um, yeah. Familiar with CETA Faster? So what's interesting about CETA Faster, and, and we've adopted that, that's what we're using now Cita on all our Cheetah? patients. Is that Cita what it's Cheetah, but, Cheetah. Yeah, it's my, that's exactly right. Does it surprise yeah. you that I'm going to CETA Faster? Yes, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Based off of my, what animal is it, Roya? Spirit uh, animal. Thank you, spirit animal. Um <laughs> Uh, so CETA Faster is interesting. Uh, so there's a paper published in Ophthalmology in 2019, and it's about 30% faster than CETA Fast, and it's over 50% faster than CETA Standard. And I am willing to give up a little bit of data to get an accurate visual field. Now, yeah. the key with it is, is if you're running CETA Fast on all your glaucoma patients, you're losing no data to go to CETA Faster. They're, they're equivalent. So you're getting a, you're getting a faster visual field. So if you're doing CETA fast, you definitely should convert to CETA faster. Now, CETA standard, of course, is going to give you more data points and more data than either of those two. But boy, you guys have sat in those machines. You know how miserable it is to sit there through a CETA standard. How accurate okay. is that visual field going to be? And how is that even helping you make the right decision uh, for your patients if you can't get an accurate visual field? So been very also, happy with CETA faster. Visual field. Yes, correct. And so how many visual fields do you want to run and what type before you say this is a visual field defect? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm forced sometimes to make a decision pretty quick because yeah. being in a referral network, some of these patients have already been seen and and then sent to me. But ideally, right. I want two accurate ones and probably to be safe three yeah how long do you wait between each of those tests uh depends on how much risk or how bad i think the glaucoma is so if it's a if it's a visual field that you know they are missing let's just say you know 70 percent of their field on a 24-2 you know that patient's coming back you know depending on their eye pressure um within three months to repeat it if it's a patient with a small nasal step, um, some retinal nerve fiber layer thinning, um, you know, I may start treatment, but I'm going to bring them back probably at six months in that situation. Um, and that's what happened when you're when you're out camping and doing this. I got I got glamping. I got flies flies floating around me. Um, I'm going to bring that patient back in six months uh, to do that. You know, so it depends on the severity of the glaucoma, definitely, especially on that that first visual field. And you're going to know because you're going to look at structure and function. Your OCT is going to tell you if it's significant um, along with that visual field defect. And and if they're not matching up or somewhat matching up, you need to be suspicious that you either got an inaccurate test or something else could be going on. Absolutely. Beautiful. So, so we could we could have like... 
three months a series with you and and go go over stuff so we're definitely gonna have to have you back to talk about some other things but real quick i do want to get to treatment um so we are in a a joke with people it's it's a it's a it's an amazing time to be alive right um for so many different reasons but for glaucoma in particular there's several new players right so Let's, you know, try and just take it as objectively as possible. What, you know, first, first line treatment, you got branded Lumigan, Travitan Z, Visalta. You, you know, those are pretty much your front runners for branded uh, glaucoma therapies, prostaglandins. Am I missing something? Uh, I think you got them all. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, you know, if you're going for a branded, what, what is your thought process? Is there anything that helps you differentiate between those three at least? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, always with everything, you know, managed care plans and insurance going to dictate things a little bit, right. No matter what we're dealing with branded or, or, or generics. Um, you know, when we're talking about, um, for example, there's some, you know, interesting studies out there looking at some of its effect at with nocturnal, um, IOP mm-hmm. and its effectiveness yep. there. Um, the Jupiter study looking at, you know, a patient population that has a lower, um, you know, baseline entering IOP and, you know, look at a lot of these studies. A lot of times when they're, when they're, when prostaglandins are being studied, they have a pretty high starting IOP. That's, that's just a normal thing. This particular study was interesting. They had a lower baseline pressure. I think it was like around 19 and a half or so. And so my lower, um, IOP patients that are, you know, not necessarily normal tension glaucoma, but someone that has a pressure below 20, I feel like that's a good starting point. Um, you know, the other thing I want to just comment on is what is first line therapy anymore? Because, um, you guys probably saw the study, the light study that came out that made a huge push and is very compelling that SLT should be first line or at least should be equivalent to glaucoma medications and it should be offered to patients as well. And, and I do, I offer patients one or the other. I offer them what's, what's the glaucoma medication or SLT people take it SLT versus treatment. Uh, the percentage that's, it's higher with drops in my, in my practice more still would prefer drops over SLT. Um, I can't give an exact percentage, but the majority still do drops, but I still have the discussion with them. Yeah. And if you look into that study, you know, it had the primary outcome for it was quality of life. They looked at quality of life right. and um, it, it, it was, you know, as good, if not better with, with SLT. And so it's worth looking at that study. It's in uh, Lancet um, is the, is the publication in April of 2019 uh, and, awesome. and probably the most you- powerful study to come out to push SLT as, as first line. You probably know the reference for this better, but my glaucoma specialist in my practice has also been offering in regards to surgical options for patients with uh, that are more at risk for narrow angle glaucoma have been offering cataract surgery over doing some of the other options too, which I thought was kind of interesting, especially patients that are maybe a bit younger that you wouldn't necessarily think about that yet. What's your experience with that? Yeah, so I completely agree with him. Um, the Eagle study is one study to reference and take a look at. Um, in that particular study, they looked at patients that uh, had angle closure glaucoma and then acute angle closure glaucoma. And, um, you know, in the acute group, the acute angle closure glaucoma, there was a 71% reduction in, in IOP uh, just by removing the cataract. Uh, it was clear lens extraction in that study. Uh, so, you know, the challenge with that is, you, you, what do we have to do from an insurance standpoint? But if you have a patient that is an acute angle closure glaucoma or even has narrow or, or they're, they're, they're in, they have acute or they have angle closure glaucoma chronic and they have a cataract, um, the best option is get the cataract out. Uh, yeah. You know, the ones that weren't in acute had a 30% reduction in IOP uh, that were just yeah. angle chronic angle closure glaucoma. So, yeah, I completely agree with him. And that's our first go-to is get the cataract out and um, you're going to make those patients' lives better. Well, isn't it interesting sometimes? I think a lot of medicine in general is starting to get this way. But 
aside from simply treating the pressure issue, treating the anatomical issue that's potentially causing this problem, which in that case is a large lens, right? Putting pressure on the system potentially. Yeah, you think about a lens, uh, it's really just a cyst building up over time inside our eye. It's getting bigger and bigger with time and you get this kind of claustrophobic situation and that's what you run into. And if you can get that big that. lens out of there, you know, there's the potential to drop the pressure for these people. Absolutely. Makes sense. Real quick, a little bit about uh, your experience with Repressa and Roclatan. I haven't personally had a ton of experience. I've had actually no experience with Roclatan yet um, and limited experience with Repressa. What do you think? Yeah, so it's great to have products that are a completely different drug class. It opens the door for all of us to have more options to treat patients and maybe even uh, ward off some surgery You know that, that could be impending. And we've noticed that a bit that we're not sending people to surgery as fast because of having those two options. Um, you know, if you look at the FDA clinical trial, the one downside of it is that there are some side effects from it. There are some ocular adverse events and, you know, conjunctival hyperemia being, being one, which is right around 50% or so, um, with both a little higher in the, with Roclitan and in the, uh, mercury study, the mercury studies, and then some corneal verticillata, which were non-visually significant, is another thing you can see with that, uh, with either of them. And then some conjunctival hemorrhages, which are right around the limbus. But I'll tell you, the, the efficacy of them both in, in both the, in the rocket studies, which was the Repressa study and the Mercury study, uh, is impressive. And to have things that you can dose once a day, both of them are once a day, of course, um, I view Ropressa's an add-on to a prostaglandin, and then you have Roclitan, which is a combination of Ropressa and a prostaglandin as something that you could start first line. Uh, coverage for that's maybe a challenge, but it's also something where if you're not getting what you want with your initial therapy, you can switch to it, and you're still keeping patients on, on once a day because compliance issues uh, are still a major issue with our patients and in, in using their drops correctly. Absolutely. So if we can minimize you, it, let's do it. Yeah. What do you think too? I mean, knowing the correlation or honestly the comorbidity of dry eye and glaucoma, what do you think about some of the different preservative free glaucoma medications or options for patients that are suffering from uh, dry eye while being treated for glaucoma? Yeah, they, they 100% have a place and, um, you know, dry eye is prevalent in our glaucoma patients Plenty of papers, Journal of Glaucoma released one in 2018, looking at meibomian gland dysfunction in glaucoma. Um, European Journal of Ophthalmology released one in 2017. You know, I'm going to be presenting one at Academy, um, looking nice. at patients involving uh, that that came in for cataract surgery plus a plus a MIGS procedure, and the prevalence of of dryness there, and how they how they looked afterwards three months down the road. So I uh, would love to share that with you guys uh, at Academy at some point, but it's prevalent. Yeah. And, and to have something like uh, Zalpros is one, you know, that, that still is preservative, but it's not, but it's BAK free uh, is helpful. And so I definitely treat my glaucoma patients aggressively, their dryness, because although we're, we're treating a disease that potentially could make them lose their sight, Dry eye and my bombing gland dysfunction, ocular surface disease in general, is affecting their quality of life probably more than what the glaucoma is, especially in the early stages. And if we ignore that, uh, we're not helping them. You know, we're Absolutely. we're treating glaucoma, but we're forgetting about something that's affecting their quality of life extensively. Absolutely. Well, maybe yeah. just a fun topic for our listeners. What's your response to your patients asking about marijuana and? eye pressure lowering options and Seattle obviously here it's legal. So people love asking that question here. Yeah, no. So I don't get as much of it as probably you do, uh, in Seattle. Um, <laughs> well, Roy but, is high right now. So but, uh, I definitely get that question. Um, and, and my response always is right now we just have agents that are better. Um, at lowering intraocular pressure, marijuana, you know, it, 
it lowers eye pressure. It's just you'd have to smoke so much of it to sustain the pressure lowering over an extended period of time um, with it. And, and so I just tell them we have better agents right now. I do think an issue, and, and this, came, this just came up in a meeting, and you guys may have seen this, is you know, a lot of people are using um, CBD oil, which is a component um, of cannabis. And a paper came out that said that that actually does not lower IOP, that is actually increasing IOP. Uh, and that was published in uh, Investigative um, Ophthalmology and Visual Science in 2018. So that's a concern and that's something now that I do pay attention to because patients a lot of time will be using that for other reasons, whether it's to reduce inflammation, make them sleep better. Uh, so I think it's something that we need to at least pay attention to in, in some of our patients because there's a the potential to raising pressure and not lowering pressure. Absolutely. Very interesting. Well, this has been fun. I, I We have... 17,000 more questions that we could ask. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to throw them at you, but, um, I think we're going to save them for another time. We've had a good chat. You are awesome. I really appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with us tonight and, uh, take a little break from your, your training and fly fishing and cattle herding <laughs> and all the different stuff you do in South Dakota. Well, I, thanks so much for having me. Uh, you guys keep Our killing pleasure. it. This is this is fun stuff. I enjoyed the conversation tonight. Nothing better to talk about than glaucoma too and spirit animals. Um, you know, steaks, bush latte. Uh, love go it. Go on and on. <laughs> I would love to share a bush latte with you guys sometime. We'll uh, introduce <laughs> you to that. For so. sure. <laughs> we'll mark it down for anyone who wants to learn more about glaucoma. Check out Dr. Schweitzer at Academy. Do you know what day you're talking? Uh, so I'll be at Vision Expo West coming up and then Academy and I believe I'm the weekend. I probably oh, should nice. know that, nice. but I think I'm on the weekend for Academy and then Vision Expo. I got to look, but it's coming up. So it's crazy Perfect. how fast the summer's gone. Right. Oh my God. Faster than you can think about. Well, thanks again for everything. It was great. Well, that about does it. Before we go, reach out to us for feedback questions stories things you want us to talk about either on our instagram facebook or of course call or text us 920-350-8622 we never depart without saying thanks to valley contacts for their support both for their amazing lenses and the great people they are to work with and be sure to tune in and listen to our next episode but until then try not to blink <laughs>